cards. And I said, uh, well, what's happening is, is people aren't filling them out really. So what I want to do is just encourage you. Uh, we want to pray for you. Um, our leaders, the staff, our elders, we really want to pray for you. So please don't be shy in filling those things out. They're confidential. Not everyone sees them. Um, but we look at them and we pray and we come together as a staff and as a, a leadership team and we pray for you. So um, anyways, just want to encourage you. Uh, this morning, we are uh, still uh, taking a break. So last week, uh, Dr. Yarbrough preached uh, for us and uh, we took a break from our series in Luke. And we, this week, will also, um, uh, we're going to make a little diversion this morning and we'll get back to Luke next week, um, but we're going to be preaching um, uh, on a topic that I think is uh, really important right now where we're at as a culture, as a nation. And in full disclosure, for those of you with uh, your kids with you here, and we're glad that they are, um, I, think that, um, I think our subject matter this morning will be, for, mo- for all intents and purposes, pretty pg uh, but there may be some things you might want to explain in fuller detail when you get home. I have deliberately used cons- large conceptual uh, ideas and not the nitty-gritty, ugly details of what we're talking about to help you grasp the truth of uh, God's Word uh, on our topic uh, in a way that you can further expound that when you get home. Um, but our sermon this morning is God, the Bible, and Identity. Let's pray. Father, um, the world, at least our nation, is shaking right now. It is shaking and it is quaking because uh, we have um, come to a place where our foundation uh, is not the solid rock of your word and your son Jesus, but sand. And sand is shifty and unstable. But your kingdom, Lord, is firm and established forever. So we pray, O God, that you would illuminate this morning the sermon, my words, uh, and connect with us through the power of the truth and the power of Scripture. Lord, transform the way we think about these important topics that we might be conformed to what is right and what is true and what your word proclaims. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've arrived at the end of our society's acquaintance with the Bible. By our society, I mean Western culture. Yeah, the vestiges of biblical literacy still remain in some quarters, but institutionally and culturally, we're at the end. For centuries, art and literature and philosophy and education and law and politics were heavily influenced by the Bible. And now I'm careful to admit that um, American culture has not solely been influenced by Christianity and the Bible. Many founding fathers were Christians, but some were not. Some were deists, Christianized deists, to be sure. And one historian has argued for a more nuanced middle ground between the two, and 
said that uh, the founding fathers were theistic rationalists, a mix of Protestantism, natural religion, and rationalism. And I mention all of this because of the current crisis in our nation going on right now about gender identity, autonomy, liberty. Um, You've probably asked yourself more than a couple times, or at least you've probably thought to yourself, how did we get here? I know I have. And maybe you've responded in your head or to a friend, well, we've gotten away from God, or we've shifted from our Christian roots. There's a whole host of one-liners that you'd you'd be tempted to respond with, but I'd like to spend a few minutes this morning explaining how we got to where we are. And then I hope to show that the only way forward for us is God and the Bible. And I know that sounds simple, but it is. And my sermon this morning, as I've said before, is God, the Bible, and identity. For the history of human existence... Um, existence itself has been something that has been defined in transcendent axioms. And what I mean by that is, big ideas about the world came from God. Or in the case of the pagans, the gods. The individual was defined by his or her relationship uh, to the world around them. And their relationship to their nation, their race, their community religion, etc. Identity was a corporate enterprise, mostly. One could aspire to greatness or achievement, uh, but that was always in relation to the surrounding world or cosmos. You understood yourself within your class or your tribe or your ethnic group, but you were part of a whole, a piece of the larger puzzle. There just wasn't the rugged individualism or self-determination that we take for granted today for most of human history, where um, it doesn't matter now uh, where you come from or what your family trade is, you become what you want to become. And that's not a bad thing. A child of a farmer goes off to college and becomes a corporate executive. The blacksmith's son grows up and becomes a lawyer. And those are good things. And in that sense, self-determination is a good thing. But something happened along the way. By way of the development of ideas, and that something is called postmodernism. Just raise your hand if you've ever heard that word before. Uh, I won't ask you, but if I asked you all to articulate it, maybe not every hand would go up because it's a hard thing to define. But I'm going to try. Now, to give you a context for postmodernism, it's necessary to explain what modernism is. And modernism is the philosophy that flowed out of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment used scientific inquiry, uh, something that existed for millennia, to revolt against the supernatural claims of the Bible. Now, that wasn't all the Enlightenment was about, but for our talk this morning, that's kind of the long and short of it. The enlightened mind only accepted that which could be proven empirically from observation or experiment. If you believed things that could not be proven, well, they weren't facts. They became values 
or beliefs, if you will. After the Enlightenment, the rational mind came to see religion kind of like naive sentimentality. And once you've stripped away the existence of the supernatural and the virgin birth, Jesus' miracles and the resurrection, it's not hard to see how this modern way of approaching reality and existence, hence the term modernism, dispenses with God altogether. This modern philosophy proclaimed the autonomy of human reason. So I'm headed somewhere here, so stay with me. <laughs> and then, and then, in the 1960s, a new view emerged. And that was postmodernism. So I've just explained a little bit about the Enlightenment, rationalism, and modernism, a modern way of looking at the world, not through the lens of Scripture, but rather through the lens of science and inquiry and empiricism. And then in the 1960s, postmodernism emerged, which was a reaction to modernism's failed promise of using human reason alone to better mankind and make the world a better place. And postmodernism's essential idea involves the denial of any objective and absolute truth. The Christian and the modernist disagreed on the source of truth, but they both agreed that truth exists, and truth exists absolutely. In contrast, the modernism did not believe, does not believe in absolute truth, does not see truth in absolute, but subjective individualist terms. You have your truth, I have mine, there are many truths. We all make our own truth. That's postmodernism. And it seems on the surface like a sort of intellectual humility, right? Because it challenges dogmatic beliefs, hoping in the process to be enriched by a, uh, a variety of views and opinions. If you've ever heard the maxim, all truth is relative, that's postmodernism. And this helps us understand the crisis we're in right now over gender identity. See, because of truth and reality and existence aren't objective, status, static things, but they're subjective and fluid, then we have statements like this one from Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy who said, quote, at the heart, liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. Now, on the surface, that may seem like a harmless statement, but it might be the most destructive statement ever spoken by a Supreme Court justice ever. Because what Justice Kennedy was driving at was this. Human beings create their own reality. That's what that statement means. Well, why is this important? Because right now in our nation... There is intense pressure to redefine male and female. And so the big question we should ask is, can we really define our own existence? Is human identity really only a matter of subjective personal feelings? Well, we're going to look at scripture. We're going to look at a few scriptures. Let's look at Genesis 1, 26 through 27 first. 
And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. One of the first things we see is that God is the creator and we're the creature. We see that we didn't create ourselves. We don't create ourselves. Our biological existence is given to us by God. And in this passage of scripture here, what we see is that the very first word spoken about humans says that mankind, first, is made in God's image, and secondly, the very next statement defines humans in binary categories of male and female. There is no third category. There is no other option. So God's very first words about human beings are that they're made in his image and that they are male and female. This is fundamental for understanding not only all of the Bible, but all of human existence and all of the world. So the first thing I want us to see is that our biological existence is not arbitrary, it's not subjective, it is something given to each one of us by God. And then we look at Genesis 2 and 18 and 20 through 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What's instructive for us about that passage is we see that God saw that man was incomplete. God's mission for mankind to the world was insufficient without a partner, and not just any partner, a woman. When God created Eve, he didn't just create someone who looked different. He created someone who was different. What makes a woman a woman is her psychology, her physiology, her physicality, not just her anatomy. As if female identity is simply a matter of cosmetic replication. A woman is simply more or I should say complexly more, than what she looks like. As the world's creator, God is also the world's owner. And that includes the human race. As the Lord, God in creation, rules all of his creatures by calling them into being and establishing their function and seeing that they maintain it. And what that means is that if the sun ceases to shine... It is failing to do, it isn't doing what God created it to do. If the trees stop producing oxygen, 
they cease to be what God created them to be. Life-giving organisms making it possible for humans and animals to breathe. And if men try to stop being men and women try to stop being women, they aren't doing what God made them to do. This is why there are warnings in Scripture against using our sexuality and our gender in the wrong way. Leviticus 18 and 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And Deuteronomy 22 and 5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now these are warnings. This isn't a communication of God's hostile attitude towards human beings. This is a warning saying, I love you. I've made you a certain way. I've created you for flourishing and for my glory and for your good. Don't do these things because this is not what I've created you for. Do you know why you warn people? Because you love them and you want them to flourish. I'm, I'm, I'm making it my task to defend God. Because the view of God in our culture is uh, vindictive and uh, bitter and um, one that just seeks to arbitrarily punish people for uh, seemingly um, uh, rules that seem to make no sense. And what I want you to hear this morning is that everything God has done in creation and design is for a specific reason, for our flourishing, for his glory, and for our good. And when we break from that, we bring ruin on ourselves and our society. When you warn people, it's because you love them. You know, you tell your children, don't run out into the street, because if you do, I'm going to spank you. Imagine all the kids get together and say, we, we really need to fix this. You know, these parents, they really, they're really hostile towards us. You know, we need to do something about our moms and dads. Actually, you tell your children that because running out in the street will do what? It might get them killed. And you don't want that for them, so you give them very tough and stern warnings saying, don't run out into the street. Your mom has told you that, right? I saw her eyes connecting with me. She was like, and so you warn because you love. Listen, God's word may sting, but it's never unloving. It may sting, but it's never unloving. In an article entitled, Choosing Gender Ignores the Truth of Human Persons, Mary Hassan writes, Sexual difference matters to us. It's a part of the intrinsic goodness of God's creation. Has meaning and value and lies at the heart of marriage. Only love expressed through the sexual difference of husband and wife is intrinsically and inseparably ordered to creating new life. Gender ideology erases sexual difference, facilitating marriage redefinition. And without sexual difference, human sexuality is disconnected from procreation. And sex becomes an individualized pursuit of passing pleasure. So why is there confusion over this issue? Maybe... The things I've said so far and the scriptures I've read make absolutely no sense to you. But if, if you're on board and you're saying, okay, that makes sense, I get it. 
God made the world for a specific purpose. He created male and female procreation. The human race propagates. Yeah, it all makes sense. Well, how did we get here? Why, why is there so much confusion over this issue? Well, I discussed already the influence of postmodernism, and that itself may be a little bit of an oversimplification because there are certainly other forces that have created the confusion in our society. But the simple answer to why there's confusion is we suppress the truth. Sinners, as sinners, we suppress the truth. The confusion in our society over gender is the direct result of burying God's truth. Look at Romans 1. Starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For although they knew not God, although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then the next verse says, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up, right, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this cause, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The first thing we should see and we should recognize is, number one, we all suppress the truth in different ways. And we all deny at times that we're created beings. What's at the core of this issue right now in our nation is the denial that we don't create ourselves, but God creates us. And what Paul is doing in this passage in Romans is he is locating all of our problems in this singular, multifaceted error, the denial of God. But, you know, denying God isn't an excuse. In verse 21 we read, that even though they knew God, um, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him because they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There are consequences for denying God. When hearts are darkened by denying God, they stop glorifying him as God. And what soon happens, and this is what this passage is saying, is the disordering of nature. Denying God denies who made the world and who made us. And the very next thing that follows is nature gets out of whack. Nature becomes disordered. Nature becomes chaotic. God spoke the world, to exist, the world into existence and he, out of chaos, brought order. But what sin does is sin thrusts us back into chaos. That's what sin does. 
And in verse 25 it says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged. So there's a transaction going on here. Man-made philosophies that do not comport with what, what is true and what God says means an exchange of truth. God has given us the truth. When we take man-made philosophies and we say, no, I think this is true, there's an exchange. We give up the truth. And instead, we believe a lie. So there's not both of these things held together. There is a transaction happening where by accepting this, it means rejecting this. And God gives them up to the dishonoring of their bodies because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And you think, well, I don't pray to a dog or a cat or, or a, an eagle. What do you mean they worship the creature? We're creatures. God's the creator. And when we elevate the ideas of other people, including ourselves above God, we're worshiping ourselves as creatures. God's the creator, we're the creature. There's a distinction between the two, and when we demote what is true that comes from God and elevate things that aren't true that come from man, we're worshiping the creature. It's as simple as that. And what Paul is saying is that denying the truth about our design has terrible consequences. Self-inflicted consequences, which itself is God's judgment. Like a parent letting a child touch a hot stove because... You know, they, 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 just, they just won't listen. Those are the consequences, you know, of rebelling. God lets us, he gives us over to, the, to our lusts and desires when we, when we just continue to insist on it. And so sometimes God lets people have their way, and that's what we're seeing around us. That's what Romans 1 is declaring. That sometimes God lets people have their way. And that itself is a judgment. So to answer the question we asked earlier, are we really the ones who get to define our existence? Is human identity really a matter of subjective personal feelings? Well, the answer is no. And the answer is that only God gets to define us. See, friends, this isn't about bathrooms. This is about the nature of reality and truth, and who gets to define it. The issue is about truth and reality, and unless we have a deeper and more compelling view of human nature that explains where such sentences like from Justice Kennedy come from, our children and the next generation will simply be swept away. I want you to ponder on that for a moment. Unless we are able to articulate a more compelling view of the world vis-a-vis the word of God and the story of redemption in God's son Jesus, our children and the next generation will be swept away. In Mark 10, 2 through 9, Jesus gets in a discussion with the Pharisees about divorce. And um, they're debating the laws about, you know, Lawful causes to divorce. The Pharisees, you know, they get in a discussion with Jesus about, you know, uh, what's a legitimate reason to get divorced. And Jesus responds by emphasizing that marriage 
as a permanent relationship between a man and a woman goes back to God's purpose at the beginning of creation. And he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the idea here, the importance of this passage, is that Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, only reaffirms God's design for humanity in those binary terms of male and female. That's what Jesus does. He comes along and he affirms that original intention by God for humanity in male and female terms. So how do we respond to our neighbors who are transgender? Well, we respond in love. We respond in grace, as we should to all of our neighbors. But we absolutely must, in truth and with truth, respond about the nature, the true nature of reality. God made human beings male and female, and that means that a person's gender is not a mistake. It's an incredible blessing from God. And so this morning, what should be clear to us is that we don't have the right to define our own concept of existence. Only God does. And when we attempt to do that, we make ourselves God. And that's idolatry. People may have experiences that have shaped their emotional and psychological development, And that development complicates, you know, what for centuries have just been assumed biological norms. There may be some here today that are, you know, listening that have struggled with understanding their identity, um, their sexual identity in strictly male and female terms. But we all need to know that if we repent of our sins and profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, He takes the marred image in us and recreates us in the image of God by making us new creatures. God ordered the creation by calling chaos to order. Sin throws the order of nature back into chaos and Jesus recreates us as new creatures ordering our nature again. The good news is that we are free to be who we are in Jesus, imperfect people, but that also means that we're called to holiness because Jesus calls us to radical discipleship in following him. Our identity is in Christ. We are who he says we are. Our identity is not in ourselves. Our identity is not in what's popular in our culture right now. Our identity is not in man-made modern philosophies or postmodern philosophies or, or contrary alternate views of the world and existence. Our identity is in Christ, and he declares who we are. Which means we're not who we think we are, no matter what the culture tells us. We're who God says we are. 
See, postmodernism hasn't just destroyed hasn't destroyed Christianity. Excuse me, it hasn't destroyed Christianity. But what it's kind of done is, it's cut Christianity in half. In many ways, half the story. You have an emphasis on God's universal love, without an emphasis on God's judgment. You have an emphasis on redemption, without an emphasis on sin. And so, when that's your view of God. What God wants for you simply becomes what you want for yourself. Materialism, satisfaction, and physical pleasure void of suffering, um, or even a new sexual identity. And what's, what gets lost is the most fundamental underlying definition of the Christian life, and that's self-denial. Maybe the biggest challenge of of our culture today, especially being Christians in the, in the modern world, is we have a crisis of self-denial. Not just for Christians, but for, you know, especially people in the world. There is a crisis of self-denial. We've been told that indulgence and being what you want to be and doing what you want to do is the highest aim and goal. But Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And because this divine imperative of self-denial is missing, we're left with a gospel which any means to self-attainment is seen as legitimate. After all, God wants for you what you simply what you want for yourself, whatever that may be. But Jesus, as I said before, calls us to radical discipleship because he's ransomed us from sin. So what does it mean to love people who are struggling with their identity? Well, it doesn't mean ignoring reality, which some of us might be tempted to do. In fact, ignoring reality may be the most unloving thing we can do. You have to ask yourself, Do you really believe that the wrath of God remains on all who do not honor God as God? Do you believe that God is the one behind our sex, our gender, and our personhood? Do you believe that struggling with gender identity is currently uh, in anguish? It, 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 It anguishes those souls who struggle with it. And that anguish will continue to last unless there is deliverance from the power of sin through the shed blood and salvation and atonement of Jesus Christ. Because that's where all sinners, not just people who struggle with transgender issue, all sinners are headed towards a future and eternity of eternal anguish without the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ only. I happen to be talking right now about the gender crisis in our nation, but I could technically substitute every other cultural sin in our society right now. This just happens to be the hot topic right now. And one of the ways we've probably gotten here is by ignoring a lot of other sins. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that this is chief above all the worst sin ever. This just happens to be the sin on the pages of our newspapers right now. Romans 12 and 9 says... Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. One translation puts it this way. Don't just pretend to love others, but really love them. 
hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. So in closing, I can't give you a manual to tell you what each one of you should do in each exact situation. But if you believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, you cannot simply be silent. I want to encourage you to seek help from the Holy Spirit, to be led by him to fulfill the Great Commission. Yes, the Great Commission still stands. And to consult the Word of God and to know whether or not it's received, God's Word goes out and can't come back to him void. Isaiah 55 and 11, God says, I send out my Word and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it, the word of God. There's still hope in the world because Christ is on the throne. Let's pray. Father, now uh, we ask you to take this information that has come into our heads and distill it in our hearts. Uh, Your word gives us clarity, and if we're not careful, we can be puffed up with pride um, and feel uh, bitterness or even hatred to those who trample your word. But Lord, we also were sinners who trampled your word. In fact, we're sinners saved by grace, and so someone told us, whether it was our parents or a friend, a neighbor, or even a stranger that forgiveness is only found in Jesus Christ. Salvation is only found in Jesus. Lord, give us the courage to also proclaim that truth in love and that our words would be seasoned with salt and filled with love, that we might be able not to shrink back in cowardice, but to boldly, with wisdom, engage our neighbors, our community, our society, and our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only hope of salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.